Good morning. Uh, good morning to those of you who are joining us online. Um, technology is a lot of things, but one of the things that's cool about it is that you can, even on a holiday weekend, we can be kind of together in lots of different places. Um, so we're grateful for that. Gregory Boyle has written this. He said, God can get tiny if we're not careful. God can get tiny if we're not careful. Uh, my, my story is kind of the opposite of John's. John shared a little of his story this morning. Uh, I went to, into the world of accounting as well out of college, went to the big city of Dallas, Fort Worth, and was ready to crush it. And God rescued me out of that after one year. Um, but in, in my one long year of public accounting, there's a couple days that stand out from that. And one of those days is the day that the CEO of our company visited. I was working one of the largest accounting firms uh, in the U.S. And the CEO was this kind of mysterious, larger-than-life personality, it seemed to me. I would get uh, these fancy official emails from him. You know, they would go to everybody a couple of times a month. They would tell of all the great things that our company was doing. And so to me, 23-year-old staff, one accountant, like this guy seemed like an accounting wizard. And so I remember he, he was, uh, was going to come visit. And about a month before he was going to come visit, all the preparations were in place, okay? And so everyone got the email, you're supposed to tidy up your office, file any loose papers, like get everything cleaned up, make sure it was looking good. Uh, projects around the office that hadn't been finished were getting wrapped up. Paint was getting f- touched up. Uh, the carpet was clean. Like we were ready for this guy to visit. And I remember on the day that he visited, I was actually, I was not on a client working. I was in the office working. And so I was there. And we knew the exact 15 minute window that he was going to walk through our office. And the instructions were clear. Do not talk to him. Do not try to impress him. You're to sit in your cubicle and work. And so that's what I did. And I remember you kind of heard the commotion and then him and his big entourage came walking through. I resisted the temptation uh, to even look up. I just kept working, uh, typing away at my computer, working on my files. And as they walked away, I kind of poked my head up and looked and all you could see was just like the back of his head. And I was thinking, we do this to people. We make them larger than life, right? Athletes become enshrined. Actors get stars on the walk of fame. Social media influencers go viral. Politicians dominate the airwaves and our brain waves. And people, humans, just like us, become bigger than us. We're fascinated by what athletes can do on and off the court. We buy magazines just to catch a glimpse of a picture of our favorite celebrity buying a latte at Starbucks. We constantly refresh our favorite social media app to see if there's a new post that that person has posted. And we consume the news, careful to not miss any detail. And these humans, people just like us, become so much bigger than us. And then I wonder if at the same time God becomes smaller. And I think about in my life all the people that have become so outsized, that have become so big, and the, the territory and the brainwaves that they have taken up in my life. 
how much I have read and thought and stressed about these people and how little God has become. God can get tiny if we're not careful. This week we're going to be in Luke chapter 2. We are in, this is our third week of many weeks in the book of Luke. We're doing a significant, significant series on the book of Luke that we're going to be walking through it over the next few months. Brian kicked it off a couple weeks ago. Last week we were at the second half of Luke chapter 1. And I hope that you will join along with us in this series. And not just be here on Sunday mornings for it, but read along with us. I know many of you have gotten the N.T. Wright series or the N.T. Wright book, Luke for Everyone. Um, However you join us, I just hope you'll read it for yourself. I, I heard a guy this week, he said he has a good friend in his life that always ask him this question, where are you in the Gospels this week? Every time he sees this guy, he asks him, where are you in the Gospels this week? I love that question. I wish that was a part of our questions when we ask, like, how are you doing? What's been going on in your life? Where are you in the Gospels this week? What conversations might result from that? And so I hope you'll read Luke. Like, maybe you just read through the book of Luke over and over and over as we go throughout this series. Or maybe for me, like next week, I'll just read Luke chapter 3 every day. And just read it and read it and read it. Let it get in you. So today is Luke chapter 2. And one of the great challenges when it comes to Luke chapter 2 is that we know Luke chapter 2. For the most part. This is a Christmas story. This is the birth of Jesus. This is the manger, the shepherds, the angels... Uh, Jesus being presented in the temple, then Jesus sneaking away from his family, kind of, sort of, when he's 12 years old. Like, we know these stories. And so it makes it hard to come at these stories with fresh eyes when these stories aren't fresh. My wife and I recently decided to list our house, try and sell our house. And there was this moment after we had decided to list our house that we were forced to look at our house with fresh eyes. And those living room walls that were just all dented up and scratched up from playing football with the boys, suddenly we saw. And the unfinished projects in our recently renovated bathroom that we hadn't finished, suddenly we saw. And all of the toys that had taken over one of our bedrooms, suddenly we saw. And when we saw it, then we were able to do something about it. And so that's my hope for us this morning, that these, we can look at these stories with fresh eyes, and then we will be able to do something about them. So I want us to walk through this story and look upon it with fresh eyes. First, the manger. How do you see the manger? If you're reading N.T. Wright's book this week, N.T. Wright believes that we have completely mistaken what we see when we see the manger. That when we see the manger, we think of Christmas, we think of that front yard setup, we think of cute baby little Jesus. But N.T. Wright says, when the shepherds saw the manger, they saw the Messiah. So the shepherds were told the Messiah is about to be born, and the only clue they had was that he was going to be born in a manger. So they're on the lookout looking for this Messiah, Desperately looking for the manger, because if they see the manger, that's the Messiah. 
And so for the shepherds, when they see this manger, it screams to them, Messiah. The manger screams to them, King of the world. The manger screams to them, Savior. The manger is also a striking example of one of the main themes of Luke. And that's the priority and value that's placed upon the poor and oppressed. The long-awaited Messiah, the Savior of the world, spends his first night in a feeding trough. I love Tim Mackey. He says it like this. Jesus is born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl. Jesus is born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl. Is that how we see the manger? A manger is a place where animals feed, not where kings are enthroned. God, from the very beginning, was with the poor and the oppressed, with those who felt like they were on the outside, with the outcasts. How do you see the shepherds? When you see the shepherds in this story, what do you see? The shepherds in the first century were outcasts. They were outcasts. The good Orthodox people of the day saw the shepherds as outcasts because they they could not follow the rules and regulations of the day. They were dirty shepherds who were preoccupied with taking care of their sheep and they weren't good Jews. They couldn't keep up with all the stuff they were supposed to keep up with. But most of the time when we see the shepherds, we see them through the lens of Jesus as the good shepherd. Or Psalm 23, or this very pastoral view of shepherds. But shepherds were outcasts. They were also looked down upon. Uh, Oftentimes they would graze their flock on other people's lands. They were sketchy. They were looked down upon. And God says that shepherds are the first people who receive the announcement of the Messiah. That's interesting. The very first people who find out about Jesus are outcasts, are people who can't keep up with everything. Jesus was sent to the lowly and the outcast. How do you see the angels? When you see the angels in this story, what do you see? How do you see them? One person I read this week talked about in the Roman Empire, it was common for, po- for the kings, poets, and orators to declare peace and prosperity at the birth of one who was to be an emperor. So if in the kingdom, if Prince, Prince said they're going to have a child and that child was one day to be emperor, the kings, poets, and orators would be there. So what does God do? He sends his angels to declare joy and peace at the birth of Jesus. Jesus, baby Jesus in the manger, is not on the radar of the king's poets and orators. And then what do you see when Joseph and Mary go to present Jesus at the temple? Leviticus chapter 12. Leviticus chapter 12 is a chapter that we skip over when we're doing our daily Bible reading. Leviticus chapter 12 is an entire chapter devoted to the purification of women after childbirth. There's an entire chapter in the Bible devoted to the purification of women after childbirth. And in verse 8, 
Leviticus says this. It says, if she cannot afford a lamb, she is to bring two doves or two young pigeons, one for a burnt offering and the other for a sin offering. In this way, the priest will make atonement for her and she will be clean. Look at Luke chapter 2, verse 24. What do Mary and Joseph offer? It's not a lamb. The lamb is with them, but they can't afford a lamb. So what do they offer? They offer a pair of doves. This was commonly known as the offering of the poor. That if you can't afford a lamb, you bring two doves or two pigeons, and that is the offering of the poor. King Jesus, the long-awaited Messiah, is born in an animal shelter to a teenage girl who cannot afford anything but the offering of the poor. There's a lot more going on here than we often see. Let's read Luke chapter 2, verse 25 through 35. It says, Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon, who was righteous and devout. Remember that. We'll come back to that. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Christ. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what the custom of the law required... Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you now dismiss your servant in peace. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all people. Hear this. A light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling." And rising of many in Israel, and to be a sign that will be spoken against, so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. A couple of things that stand out in here. First is the priority and role of the Holy Spirit. Brian talked about this a couple weeks ago. In Luke's gospel, he talks a lot, a lot, a lot about the role of the Holy Spirit. And you see it here. Simeon is filled, the Holy Spirit is upon him. He is, this is revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. He's moved by the Holy Spirit. This is Luke chapter 2. Holy Spirit's already doing things that should mess with our view of God. Second, Simeon declares that Jesus has come to save all people. In the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew is Jewish. He's writing to a Jewish audience. Simeon's blessing is not found in the Gospel of Matthew. It's not going to be in there. But Luke, a Gentile, the only New Testament writer who is a Gentile, puts Simeon's blessing in there. Why? Because he wants them to know that this Jesus has come to save Jews and Gentiles. And then finally, look at verses 34 and 35. Look at what Simeon says to, Matt, to Mary. These are a harsh words. It's not Merry Christmas. These are, he will come and he will cause the falling of many. He will be spoken against. A sword will pierce your own soul too. What is Simeon saying? I think this is what Simeon is saying. Jesus is not what they expected, but he is exactly what they needed. Jesus is not what the first century Jews expected, but he is exactly what they needed. And the cross is evidence of this, right? 
that Jesus is born in a feeding trough to teenage parents, claims to bring salvation to everyone, and he ends up crucified. Why? Because he wasn't what they expected. There's, there's a lot of talk in the U.S. right now about the future of the church. What will the church look like in 50 years? What should the church be focusing on? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we want Jesus to be a lot of things. But I wonder, I've been confronted this week in this passage, do we want Jesus to be who he is? Do we want the Jesus that's born in an animal shelter to teenage parents who can only afford the offering of the poor who's serenaded by angels because the king's poets and orders aren't there and who is blessed by dirty, sketchy shepherds? And if that's who Jesus is, what does that mean for the church and what we focus on and what we care about? And it makes me wonder, maybe still today, Jesus is not what we expected, but he is what we need. Maybe caring about the things that Jesus cared about from the very beginning is not what we expected, but it's maybe, and it's not popular, but maybe it's what we need. The last thing I want to leave you with is what has hit me this week. Uh, I was sharing this with someone earlier, and they talked about, we, in this story, we never talk about Simeon and Anna. Uh, or maybe we talk about it a little bit, but not a lot. And what has hit me this week is I want to be like Simeon and Anna. As you read through the book of Luke, and as we get through this book, you will see over and over and over That Jesus is not what people expected. He's not what the first century Jews expected. He's not what even the disciples expected. And you see this over and over and over. But to Simeon and Anna, he was exactly what they expected. He's what they wanted. He's what they needed. I think one of the reasons why this story doesn't grip us is because we struggle to believe that we need God. And the reason we struggle to believe that we need God is because we have made other things bigger than God. And when we make other things bigger than God, then we believe that those are the things that we need and not God. God becomes really tiny if we're not careful. All week long, I've wrestled with this question. How do you get people to realize they need Jesus when they don't realize they need Jesus? How do I get myself to realize I need Jesus when I don't realize I need Jesus? If the book of Luke is true, there is a group of people who were sleeping when Jesus was born. If the book of Luke is true, there is a group of people that were probably talking and laughing with their friends and family and they did not notice the shepherds. If the book of Luke is true, there's a person who was busy and preoccupied and did not have room for the mother of God. They didn't realize they needed Jesus and they completely missed him. And then you have Anna and Simeon, who are at the complete opposite end of the spectrum. They're absolutely ready and waiting and desperate for Jesus. And I want to be like them. So just think about this here. What if you have made God small? Not on purpose. 
Few of us do it on purpose. But what if God has become small to you? And what if that isn't true? What if God isn't small? What if God is bigger than we ever imagined? And what if God is not what you expect, but exactly what you need? Do you need Jesus? Do you need Jesus like Anna and Simeon needed Jesus? If I could, I want to ask our elders and ministers, if they would, to make their way to their places around the auditorium. As they're moving, I want to finish with this. In many ways, I think the journey of faith is the realization that we need Jesus more and more and more than we realized. That as I talk to people who are farther along in their faith journey than I am, they often talk about how when they were growing up, when they first started on their faith journey, they thought they needed to crush it at their job. They thought they needed to have a bank account that looked like this. They were all caught up and preoccupied with status and appearance and politics and all these things. And then they talk about how as they matured in their faith, as they got farther down the road of faith, one of God's mercies to them was the reorganization, the reprioritization of what was important in life. And the things that they thought they needed and had become so big in their life, they realized they didn't need it at all. And the one that they thought they didn't need, they realized actually they needed him more than anything. God graciously showed them that whatever that thing was in their life that was so great, it actually wasn't great. That God was great. So what is great in your life? Like, what do you think about? What do you stress about? What do you worry about? What do you think that you need? Do you need Jesus? I want to be like Anna and Simeon. Simeon is waiting for the Messiah. Anna is a widow, 84 years old, and every day she's in the temple courts fasting, praying, worshiping, waiting for the Messiah. Scripture describes Simeon as devout. I think you could just as easily describe Anna as devout. And so I've wrestled with this week, what does it mean to be devout? Simeon is devout, Anna is devout, I want to be like these people. What does it mean to be devout? And here's what I've settled upon. To be devout means to daily realize your need for Jesus. That those who are devout are those who daily realize their need for Jesus. They resist the temptation to make God small. And they daily make God great. Because God can get tiny if we're not careful. The great Ignatius of Loyola, he was said to have spoken these words, Take care always to keep before your eyes first God, the God who is always greater. The great challenge of today and tomorrow, Monday morning, is to be devoted, to realize our desperate need for Jesus, to be like Anna and Simeon, To realize God is not tiny and that we desperately need him.
and to keep our eyes on him. If we can serve you or receive you in any way this morning, I hope you'll come. Let's stand and sing.